0: Hey folks, Lam Ramayasha here, and welcome to a very special Mago at Movies, where me and Wheelord GTZ give our thoughts on the 90th Annual Academy Awards, aka the Oscars for the year of 2017. Now unfortunately, we were not able to get this episode out before the Oscars as we intended, so you probably already know who won Each category in the Oscars already. But I thought that this would still be worthwhile for all you guys to listen to. And hear our thoughts on what we liked about all the stuff that was nominated for the Oscars. And what we think they excelled at. Especially some of the underappreciated categories. Like the short films categories. Which not a lot of people talk about. But we devote a ton of time to. So with that... Enjoy our discussion of the 90th Annual Academy Awards. to Manga Mavericks at Movies the show where we don't talk smack about movies but we
1: praise them is that a better catchphrase GTZ? is that a better choice than what our catchphrase has been up until now a more accurate assessment of the show that we don't talk smack about movies except on the few occasions that we do I mean sort of yeah I mean what's the last bad movie we talked about Death Note? I believe it was. No, because we saw Marvel's Inhumans, and then we talked about that. Oh, right. That that didn't really count as a movie, though. No, it didn't. It wasn't really a movie, but we saw it in theaters anyway, and we talked about it anyway. And it was bad. Oh, yes. And you can listen to that episode, and that is definitely probably one of my favorite ad movies, and it didn't get a whole lot of love in our survey, but Yeah, you should definitely listen to it, especially since it is an essential part of our ongoing narrative of this podcast that we have. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we aren't talking smack about movies today. Okay, we might at some points, but... No,
0: ostensibly, this podcast is going to be a celebration, V-Lord. Today, we are going to chat about the Oscars for this
1: year, 2017, the 90th Academy Award Show. And we're going to give our thoughts on every single category and who we think should win. And then after we give our thoughts on the entire Oscar nominations, we are going To talk about our personal favorite films of the year. How does that sound, V-Lord? Sounds good to me. Excellent! So, do you want to get started right away with our first category here? Do you want to start... Bottom to top, Wheeler, do you want to end with Best Picture? Yeah, I mean, let's end with Best Picture. So are we going to start with Best Visual Effects then? We are. But first I want to say you and I both saw a lot of films this year, including most of the nominees for these awards. So this is interesting for us because usually we don't end up seeing all the films that get nominated for this stuff. But this time we have seen most of these films, so we will have a lot to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the area that I've seen the least on here are the best documentary, both feature and short subject, and then... The foreign film category. Yes, those will probably be the two categories that we will skip because I have seen none of the films in best documentary feature and best foreign films. I can at least probably talk about, uh, best documentary because I did see one of them. But, oh, okay. So we might talk about what yeah but documentary sh- We Lord saw, but we can't talk in full about best documentary feature or best foreign film. Yeah. Though like, I, 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 do I was hope- planning to see, a- a fantastic woman tomorrow like i think like literally they started having screenings in minnesota tonight for that movie so. ah poor timing yeah i also plan to see all the films in those categories and particularly with best foreign film i hope to see all the nominated films in that category within the next week because they are all showing in new york lucky <laughs> we've seen so many movies so it's Pretty exciting to be able to talk about all of these categories in depth, and while we might not have seen the documentary features, I did go and see the documentary shorts, and they were quite interesting, so I will have stuff to say about those, but... We are going to start off bottom to top, working our way up to Best Picture. So we're going to go in the order of how it's listed on Wikipedia, because why not? That's what's in front of me. So let's start off with Best Visual Effects. And the nominees are... Blade Runner 2049, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Kong Skull Island, Star Wars The
0: Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes.
1: Now, of these films, I have not seen War for the Planet of the Apes, but I have heard and seen images of the film that suggest to me that... This film is a masterclass in its visual effects for how it realistically portrays these apes, which are fully CGI creations, and they look incredibly realistic. And I particularly have heard that the orangutan in the film is incredibly well rendered and a masterpiece of CGI in these movies. And in general, the visual effects I've heard are pretty good. I think all the visual effects in all of these movies are pretty strong. I can't really say uh, War for the Planet of the Apes should earn it because I haven't seen the film. So instead, hmm, well, I think there are some times in Kong Skull Island and Star Wars where the visual effects don't look totally meshed in with the movie. Yeah, there there is some uh, weird awkward moments. I mean, I'd say that even in like Guardians that happens too. Yeah, so for my money, I would give it for to Blade Runner 2049 because I think the visual effects are a huge part of what made that world look so incredibly realistic. And maybe not realistic, but so vivid and so, like, lived in. So I definitely think the visual effects in that film were a huge part of creating that world and making it feels so... I hate to say alive because a big part of that film's world is that it feels dead, but it brought that dead feeling of that city to life. Yeah, for sure. So you would agree, V-Lord, that Blade Runner 2049 is the best pick. The one that should win Best Visual Effects. Yeah, I I agree. Alright. One thing we should do, V-Lord, is that we should keep track of all our picks and see, after the Oscars, how correct we are. And then, depending on who had the most choices correct, we should have a reward for that person, whether it be choosing the next film to tackle on the podcast, or a punishment for the person who was not correct, or at least as much correct in their picks. Huh. That, that you, sounds like an interesting proposal. And do you accept that proposal, V-Lord? I mean, sure. <laughs> all right, great. So you make sure to keep track of all of our picks tonight. Oh, okay. I'll probably just remember them in my head. And otherwise, I'll be editing this. I'll be going through it again, so I'll make sure to write it down. We won't have to rely on a commenter like Mumkey did. And by the way, that commenter was yours truly. I wrote down all of and E. Rich's Oscar nomination predictions on that video. Yes, you are welcome. Anyway, let's move <laughs> on to Best <laughs> Film Editing. The nominees for Best Film Editing are Baby Driver, Dunkirk, I, Tonya, The Shape of Water, and *Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I think Baby Driver was the best edited film for how it timed up music to the visuals. Like, that syncing is just so spot on and perfect. And that rhythm the movie has is just so precisely fine-tuned that I really feel that Baby Driver is the best pick here. What do you think, V-Lord? I'm kind of stuck between Baby Driver and I, Tanya, But I, I think I'd ha- definitely have to give the, dri- the edge over to Baby Driver for sure, just like you said, like, just the syncing of the music with the action going on, and just the seamlessness of the action, like, you'll, in that film, like, there's so many instances where you'll just go from this completely, like, more, like, subtle, like, kind of, like, more, like, I guess, like, subdued scene, I'll you know, just, like, basically, like, fucking, like, uh, wave rush you into the action like it just yeah it, it knows how to transition you with like intensity the timing of the cuts in that movie is just so precise and so just perfectly fine-tuned i hate to repeat myself but that really is the best way to describe it especially considering the musical motifs of the film and how that is so important to describing and punctuating every visual moment in the film like i think editing is a marriage of both the sound design of the film and the visual cinematography the the film edit of itself so even if we remove the sound component which you know is a huge part of baby driver but even if we remove that like the way the film is cut so deliberate to complement its score and its and its uh sound mix i think is just so beautifully done and is, it really blew me away i'm curious v lord that i tanya was your runner up for this award and i want I kind of hear your thoughts about why that is. I don't know, like, I feel like in I, Tanya, it just does a great job of kind of, like, really, like, cutting back and forth between, like, the kind of interview that they're doing and the mm-hmm. actual scenes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think that a lot of those cutaways are really well-timed. And I do think that the other films in this category have really strong editing, too, In fact, probably the movie that I liked most out of these nominees, Shape of Water, probably is the weakest in the film editing category just because I didn't notice how strong it is as much. Which, you know, they say that you shouldn't notice a well-edited film if it's, you know, well-edited. But I disagree with that. I think that if you really pay attention to this stuff, you will really notice the craft if you're a cinephile. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so in that regard, I think Shape of Water is actually probably the weakest in this category. But regardless, I think we can both agree that Baby Driver is the strongest. And with that, we are two for two. So far, we both have the same opinion. I wonder if that will continue as the night goes on. But we are going to move on and talk about Best Costume Design. And the nominees are Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, Phantom Tread, The Shape of Water, and Victoria and Abdul. First of all, why why, why is Victoria and Abdul on here? Victoria and Abdul is shit. (laughs) Well, the Victorian era designs were accurate, I guess. They weren't exactly impressive, I don't think. Well, they are pretty intricate designs, and they feel of the period. But yes, I also don't feel that they were distinct and... You know, they're fine, the costume designs. But I think it doesn't hold a candle to most... Also, Darkest Hour falls into that category. They're just wearing, like, suits, you know? They don't really have very intricate costumes. And even if they tailor-made those suits, they're they're not the most, like, impressive, outstanding-looking things in the world, I don't feel. I'd say out of all of them, like, I guess my choice would probably be Phantom Thread. I mean, the movie is about... (laughs) <laughs> making dresses yeah, It is about it, like, this category Yeah so it kind of fits perfectly it, Like Personally I'm not a big fan of Phantom Thread but like hmm. I, I definitely My problems with it were mainly with the narrative While everything else around it is fantastic So I think yeah It definitely deserves best costume design Alright well I'm in total agreement with you aside from the fact That the movie is literally about Making dresses and <laughs> making Costumes <laughs> Those costumes are incredibly well made and incredibly interesting to see made and yeah, they stood out to me and it definitely helps that the movie was about that, but <laughs> they played you know, it all out to win this category, Sid. I mean, that's a, a big point in plan. its favor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a big point in its favor. It's It's pretty hard to beat out a movie that is about this subject in particular. And I'm sure Beauty and the Beast had fine costumes. I didn't see the film, but, you know, those were probably pretty good. Shape of Water, if we count the creature as a costume design, that, you know, we can't really. I think that was fully CGI. So if we, I guess it would be the dresses of the people in the film, which were also pretty good, which were also, you know, nice 50 throwbacks. But, yeah, Phantom Tread stood out the most with its costumes. I think we're both in agreement in that. So now we're three for three. All right, so how about we move on to Best Makeup and Hairstyling? There's only three nominations in this category, which is interesting. Is there usually only three? Maybe. I guess there are usually only three, but, like, all the other awards have five. I should look at the history of these awards. I don't usually... Watch the entirety of the Oscars or hear, you know, about who won in every category, so I don't usually pay attention to this category. So I guess I'll have to look at its history and see, you know, if three is par for the course here, or if they just didn't feel like they were enough to nominate. Mitch, you know, I'm pretty sure they could find two other movies to fill it out for even five, but... I don't know. I guess not. In any case, the nominations for best makeup and hairstyling are *Darkest Hour*, *Victoria*, and *Abdul* and *Wonder*. Now, I really don't like either *Darkest Hour*, *Victoria*, and *Abdul*, but I also have not seen *Wonder*. But if that kid's face in *Wonder* is true makeup and not CGI. Then sure, let's give it to Wonder. Yeah, I don't really have much an opinion on this category, so yeah, we have to go with Wonder too. Like the hairstyling and makeup in *Darkest Hour* and *Victorian Abdul*, which you know are period pieces, and you know they have those crazy British hairstyles, and those are well done. Those look of the period. They did those well. But if that kid's face, if that deformed kid's face in *Wonder* was all makeup? Sure. You know, let's give the Oscar to that because (laughs) that's more impressive than the kind of more rote things that were done in Darkest Star and Victorian Optual. You know, we've seen well done period piece costumes before in movies. We haven't seen like those kind of effects in wonder in some time or at least not as often. Yeah. At least nowadays. So I guess we're four for four. (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to continue. (laughs) So, next category, Best Cinematography, Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, and The Shape of Water. One interesting thing to note about this category is that Rachel Morrison, who's the nominee for Mudbound, is the first female to ever be nominated for their award. And she deserved that nomination. I actually watched Mudbound right before we started recording this podcast, and the cinematography in that movie is really well done. So good on her for being the first woman to be nominated for this category. That said, I think that... The other films in this category, except for *Darkest Hour*, were stronger with their cinematography, and I think that the best cinematography has to go to *Dunkirk* because even if you might not connect with that movie narratively, it is a visual tour de force. Hmm, I I, I do agree that uh, *Dunkirk* is uh, visually impressive and all that, but like I think. I have to give it to Blade Runner. Ha-ha! Oh, our first disagreement of the night! Yeah. And why would you give it to Blade Runner? What's impressive about Blade Runner's cinematography compared to Dunkirk's? Like, I mean, you, you said with Dunkirk that it's like the Tour de France of, like... Tour de to force.
0: Tour de force. <laughs> or no, it is set in France. <laughs> so it is a tour de France as well. Uh, it's the evacuating <laughs> France. <laughs> actually, is it France? Isn't Dunkirk I, I don't Brennan? know. I don't, oh, know. Wait, I don't
1: think it's They're France. Actually, it's not France. It's uh, is it Denmark, France-able? right? No, I, I don't know. chat Let's see. Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk's in France. It is? Okay. Yeah. So it is a tour de France. <laughs> uh, okay, so like, personally I feel like uh, Blade Runner 2049 is just kind of mind-blowing visually. Like, just like the first film was just a spectacle for its time, I feel 2049 is the same way. It just looks so good and so crisp. It looks like a realistic future kind of environment. Bleak mm-hmm. and everything within it, which I, I just love. That's not I don't- to say... Dunkirk is like, looks bad. Dunkirk looks great. And I I, uh, I also think Shape of Water looks great as well. But I feel Blade Runner just kind of edges them out. You know, I agree with everything that you said about Blade Runner. But I do think Dunkirk, that is its biggest strength, its cinematography. I think that the way it depicts war and all the sh- shots and how it visually communicates all of the emotions and all the stress and all of the danger... I think the way that film is shot is its greatest asset, that and its sound mixing and design as we'll you know get to later. But yeah, Dunkirk as a narrative left me a little cold, but I can't say I don't appreciate it as a work of cinema. And in that regard, I think its cinematography was pretty stellar. More stellar than Nolan's previous film. Interstellar, at any rate. Oh! Yeah, we we don't talk about (laughs) Interstellar. Interstellar was bad times. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, Dunkirk is way better than Interstellar. Yeah. Yeah. But, hey, our first disagreement of the night. Let's see how many more of those there will be. So let's move on to Best Production Design. And the nominees are Beauty and the Beast. Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, and The Shape of Water. You know, it just occurred to me, should we be mentioning the people who are nominated for these categories Probably since they're the ones who are getting the awards. But I don't really know about the people as much as the movies, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the people are the ones winning the awards, though. Yeah. Hmm... But I guess I can't speak to, like, the history of these people as much as I can the films. So, like, I can't... We can't... I can't really talk about, like, who should win the award award in the context of, oh, this is this person's history in uh, filmmaking, and here is what this film represents about their body of work. Yeah, I I I guess that's fair, but... Yeah, I mean... I want to acknowledge the people who are actually winning the awards for their work on these films rather than, you know, the films receiving the awards for themselves without thinking about the people. But, you know, and just to clarify why we're just mentioning the names of the films and not also the people. I mean, we'll also mention the people from this point out, but we can't really talk about these nominations and awards in the context of the people's careers as much as we can uh the films themselves because we don't know as much about that yet we need to study up on that stuff for next year yeah so to go through best production design again For Beauty and the Beast, we have Sarah Greenwood nominated for production design and set decoration uh, nominated for Katie Spencer. For Blade Runner 2049, production design Dennis Gassner and set decoration Alessandra Kisola. Darkest Hour production design Sarah Greenwood. Oh, a second one. And set decoration Katie Spencer. Dunkirk production design Eden Crowley, set decoration Gary Fettis. Shape of Water production design Paul Denham Osterberry, set decoration Jane Venue and Jeff Melvin. So hey, two things that stand out to me. For both Beauty and the Beast and Darkest Hour, we have the team of Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer nominated for both. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, hey. These two women are pretty awesome it seems. They're pretty great production designers and set decorators. But, uh, I mean, I can't really speak to Beauty and the Beast, and I didn't like Darkest Hour and didn't find the production design very impressive, so uh, I guess we're gonna rule those out. Sorry, Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer. I'll try to steady up on your uh, work, since you seem pretty, pretty prolific and well-loved. But, uh, when it comes to production design... How would we judge production design? What do you think? I mean, previously the category was considered best art direction. So to me that implies what we think of production design is kind of like how the film looks in terms of like all the elements in it. Whereas cinematography is like how the film is shot. Production design is how the film looks. So we're going to judge it on that merit. And in that respect... I guess it would be between Blade 1 and 2049 and Shape of Water for me, and while I think Blade 1 and is beautifully shot, it is also very monochrome at times. Like, in the stuff in the city is very blue-hued, and then the stuff in, like, the Outlands where, uh, the protagonist meets up with Harrison Ford again is all orange-hued, so there's like no, like, spectrum of color in that movie. It's all usually monochrome-lit yeah, so shots. I, I, personally, I'd have to give it to Shape of Water. Yeah, because Shape of Water looked beautiful. Like, I loved its 50s aesthetic, and the colors were very ripe, and they popped out. Like, that movie was a treat to look at. That was a colorful movie, and it had a range of colors to depict the emotions of all its environments. It never felt too much for me. I know it felt too much for some people. Like the kind of too vibrant 50s it was. But to me it, it looked beautiful and I loved all the color in it. So yeah, I guess I guess we're both going to give us the best production design. Yep. Alright, so let's move on to best production. Sound Mixing, and the nominees are Baby Driver, Julian Slater, Tim Kavagin, and Mary H. Ellis. For Blade Runner 2049, Ron Barlett, Doug Hemphill, and Mark Root. For Dunkirk, Mark Weingarten, Greg Landarker, and Gary A. Rizzo. Shape of Water, we've got Kristen Cook, Brad Zorn, and Glenn Goater. And Star Wars The Last Jedi, we have David Parker, Michael Semenik, Ren Kleiss, and Stuart Wilson. Yeah, Baby Driver's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard to argue with this (laughs) because Baby Driver is a film just all about sound and how sound correlates to the actions we are seeing on screen and how it informs the actions of the characters in the film. It's like it's made for this movie. (laughs) I just made yeah. for this category. Yeah, Baby Driver is the best mixed film of the year. I, I think it's pretty clear. And it goes without saying that also counts for sound editing, which the nominations are Baby Driver, Julian Slater, Blade Runner 2049, Mark Mangini and Teo Green, Dunkirk, Richard King and Alex Gibson, Shape of Water, Nathan Rupert and Nelson Ferriera. And Star Wars Last Jedi Matt interviewed in Rank Kleiss. Yeah, you know, again, Baby Driver. <laughs> you have to give it to them. That. That, that film is about sound. It is yeah, about that, that's out. just a double whammy right there. Like, if there are any, like, two, two categories that I'm confident 100% about that Baby Driver's going to win, it's those two. At the very least, it should win for those two. I will say, though, that for best sound mixing, d- uh, no, sound editing, Dunkirk would also be a wordy contender, because the way that film uses sound to create mood is also pretty masterful. Yeah. Not necessarily for, I don't know if it should count for sound mixing, because I, also, I feel that sometimes the film is too loud with its sound, and that becomes a little jarring, and not very pleasant. I mean, I think it is purposeful, the way the film is mixed, but I don't know. So I guess Dunkirk is a worthy contender for those two categories as well, but I don't think it beats out Baby Driver. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. So our next category is Best Original Song, and we've got Mighty River from Mudbound, with music and lyrics from Mary J. Be Oblige. Raphael Sadiq and Tora Stinson. We've got Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name with music and lyrics by Suvjan Stevens. We've got Remember Me From Coco with music and lyrics by Kristen Anderson, Lopez, and Robert Lopez. We've got Stand Up For Something from Marshall with music by Diane Warren, lyrics by Common and Diane Warren. And we've got This Is Me from The Greatest Showman music and lyrics by... Benj, Pazek, and Justin Paul. So I have listened to all these songs though I have not watched Marshall and Greatest Showman. And I think that Mighty River, This Is Me, and Stand Up For Something are pretty on the nose of what their movies are about. And I just say that based on what I know about those latter two movies, Marshall and Greatest Showman, I mean, I know Greatest Showman that is a musical number performed in the film. It's not just something on the soundtrack like the, some of the other ones in this category. But honestly, I think this clearly has to go to remember me. Because that song is integral to that film. That is the emotional center of that film. And it's used in such powerful Unforgettable ways. Like the rest of these songs, vanish from my memory. Even though "Mystery of Love," I do think is a really good song that I like listening to. But "Coco," that is a film that is affecting in how it's used. Honestly, part of me just had to get, has to give it to Remi because, like, that's the one that I remember the most. Like, I
0: <laughs> exactly Mystery of, "Mystery of
1: Love." I really like whenever I listen to it again. I am like, oh yeah, this is really good. Then after a while, I'm like, huh, I don't even remember what that sounds like anymore. Where with Remember Me, it's still stuck in my head. Like, I don't think it's any coincidence that the song called Remember Me is
0: the <laughs> most remembered song
1: nominated for this category. And yeah. as such, the one likely to win this category for Best Original Song. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're both in agreement. Remember Me? should win the award. Remember that we said that Remember Me should win Best Original Song. But how about Best Original Score, V-Lord? The nominees are Dunkirk, Hans Zimmer, Phantom Dread, Johnny Greenwood, The Shape of Water, Alexandre Desplat, The Star Wars, The Last Jedi, John Williams, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Carter Burwell. I think Star Wars is kind of a cheat because this is, like, the same themes that has been used for Star Wars for, like, years. I mean, it's slightly remixed, so it's new. I don't know if that really counts. I don't think there was any original tracks. And if there were, I didn't notice them. Let's see. I, I can't really remember any score in Dunkirk. Like, any music. That was, like, old sound to me.
0: For I think... me, this
1: is a split between Phantom Thread and Shape of Water. Hmm... And I think, like, I don't know, like... It's hard for me to really compare those scores, too, because it's been a while since I've seen those films. I honestly feel that I can't really remember the scores for any of these films that well. I mean, I think they use their scores effectively, but I don't, like, remember a musical moment from these films very yeah. well. Uh, like, I don't know. maybe I'd say maybe I'd, like, I'd edge it out to Shape of Water. Hmm... You know, I might have to agree with you, if only because when I'm thinking of a musical moment from these films, the one that is leaping out to my mind right now is that opening scene of Shape of Water, where we are, like, seeing the underwater house, and, uh you know, we are, like, slowly working our way to the reveal of... Uh, the protagonist in that underwater house and that's memorable not only for you know the scene itself and how beautifully shot it is but i do think the music accompanying it really set the mood really well yeah I, i definitely agree so i guess we're both in agreement shape of water should win best original score and now we're moving on to the Short Films category. And we're starting off with Best Animated Short Film. Nominated for this category, we've got Deer Basketball by Glenn Keane and Kobe Bryant. Garden Party by Victor Clare and Gabriel Grapperparm. Lou by Dave Mullins and Dana Murray. Nick of His Face by Max Porter and Rue Kuwahata, And Revolting Rhymes by Jacob Ska and John Lockard. I definitely mispronounced some of those names. Fun, fun, fun fact about this category, when I was tweeting about how much I liked Revolting Rhymes, uh, both uh, Jacob Sku and uh, Jan Lacker actually uh, liked my tweet, so that, that made me happy. Hey, nice! I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were happy to see people like really responding to that film. Yeah. Because it is... Excellent. And Revolting Rhymes" is actually a two-part short film. Which which kind of makes me feel like it's cheating having it in the category, but at the same time, it's so good. I mean, it's only nominated for the first part, which is why in the show, we only see the first part. Like, if you watch the Shorts TV program that has all the best animated short films included, it is... The first part is the only part that they show. And it works as a standalone short. Oh yeah, I think it might work better as a standalone (laughs) than with the second part. I haven't seen the second part in full, but I read the synopsis of it and it does kind of bum me out that there is a continuation of that story with the wolf and the children of Red Riding Hood. Because the way that film ends is just so good when you don't know, oh my god,
0: what's he gonna do?
1: What's gonna happen? Yeah. So I like to pretend that, you know, maybe there are two continuities here. One where something very different happens to those children than what is shown in the second short. Yeah. (laughs) But... This is a pretty tough category because all of these films are really expertly made. Dear Basketball is probably the most visually arresting of these films because Glenn Keane is, of course, a master animator, a veteran Disney animator, one of the all-time greats. And, like... His draftsmanship is just so incredible, and he really brings that film to life. And it has, like, a really strong emotional core of Kobe Bryant, like, reflecting on his history with basketball and how much it means to him. And even though he's retiring, it'll always be a part of him. Like, it it is a very moving short film, and it is very beautifully done. And Garden Party... Like that is really good for just how good the CG is and that like the frogs look so realistic, and the environments look so great and like the and the way the film works up to its dark twist ending is just so, so great and how like it drops these hints just so masterfully. like it was it leads up to a really great comedic reveal at the end. Yeah. New is a great film from Pixar. That I, has a really strong emotional core to it, and a great design. Like Lou is one of my favorite designs, probably my favorite character design out of all of these films, and yeah, I just Lou, love the Lou way that I favorite just. Short film from like Disney and Pixar in a long time. Oh yeah, it's like, like I feel like the last few last years season. they've kind of been sticking to this thing of like just having this really well animated like cute short. Well, while Lou has some like legitimate substance to it, like you can really yeah, kind of feel it's for also, like, the bully yeah, and like the yeah. uh, kind of just amalgamation of like clothing and like lost stuff and it wanting to like return to like their rightful owners. It's so creative. It's such a unique story. It has a great heart and great message, and it's just... I think this is one of Pixar's strongest short films in a long time. I think Lou is one of their best character designs ever, and I want to see more of that character. I want them to Can make a Can we have a Lou movie? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. I want to see a Lou movie. I want to see more of this character, And how it moves, and like, I want to see him absorb more lost items into himself, and like, how that will change his design. It's just so creative how they've designed that character, and how they, you know, played around with him and animated him. Oh, that was just a really fun film to watch. Negative Space wasn't necessarily a fun film to watch, but it was like, you know, a very powerfully made film. I think, like, it had like a really cutting final line. Like, it was about this guy's history with his father and how they bonded over packing suitcases. And that was, like, their one real connection. And then when his father is dead, all he can do when he's looking at his coffin, the only emotion he can really feel is, like, look at all that wasted space. Look at all that negative space. Like, it is a really, like interesting kind of idea it is like a really like a film that has a lot of poignancy in its ending i think and it does have a really good like aesthetic that is also really cool to watch too oh yeah totally but i think you and i are both in agreement that our favorite of these films was revolting rhymes yeah because i love that film it feels unfair because this is the longest film in this yeah, category but last, but... last one was also the longest the longest film uh uh Parasider. But it didn't win. It didn't win, but it was the best one. I guess that is true, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like if we're if we're going with which one is gonna win, it's probably gonna be Lou. Yeah, but I mean like... and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be unhappy with that because I think they yeah. do deserve it for Lou, because yeah, Lou was Lou, Lou's a good film. Really good. Yeah But my favorite was Revolting Rhymes because I absolutely love that story. I love that twist on fairy tales. This is based On Yeah, it's based on a Roland Dahl book Or a Roald Dahl book I always say his name is Roland for some reason And, you know, he's the author of James and the Giant Peak And Charlie at the Chocolate Factory Matilda, Fantastic Mr. Fox Bunch of classics So, you know, this is based on one of his short stories That you know, also plays on fairy tales and twists on them in interesting ways. And they really brought it to life with, like, a super cool aesthetic, really fun character designs. And it was, like, just such a funny film and such a like, awesomely dark film at times. And I, 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 man, I just love everything about, you know, the story of, like, how Red Riding Hood becomes, like, this... Wolf-killing badass. I like how they play on the Snow White story. Like, they make just these fun little twists to the story that kind of modernize it in a way. And also, like, give it a lot of attitude. Like, a kind of a punk attitude in a sense. I really like it. A lot It's just, I love seeing fairy tales played with it in such unique ways. I, I, I love seeing badass Red Riding Hood killing wolves. And I loved <laughs> the tr- the ending <laughs> where the
0: Uncle Wolf uh, reveals that he was <laughs> stalking Red Riding Hood and is preparing to get revenge and ties up the babysitter he's been talking to and sharing this story with and dresses up as her and goes over to, uh, to pretend to be the babysitter and enters Red Riding Suit's home to, uh, to, to do who knows what for her two kids. <laughs> and uh, in the second half of the film, you know,
1: it doesn't turn out what you think how this, that story might go, but
0: man, when that film ended, I was like, holy crap! This is awesome! <laughs> <laughs> I love this
1: And I am totally imagining Like the alternate version Where the wolf does do to that That children what I thought he was gonna do <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that is so good
1: <laughs> Do you have any additional thoughts? that you, you kind of summed it up right there Yeah, please check out all of these short films But Revolting Rhymes especially I know that's on Netflix Both parts, so definitely check that out Because that that was such a treat, and I do look forward to watching the second part, even though it does it takes the story in a direction like I'm a little disappointed in, but it's still pretty interesting from what I can tell. But let's now talk about the best live action short films, and I'm less enthusiastic about these than the best animated short films. I. Think. I, uh, I have to admit, a lot of these are message films. And while I do think they have strong messages, I also don't feel like a lot of them say anything unique or interesting. Yeah. The one that isn't a message film is The Eleven O'Clock, which is really funny. But I also totally predicted the twist that the therapist who talk he was the actual therapist... Turned out to be the actual crazy person. And the guy who seemed crazy was the real terrorist. So, you know, that was pretty easy to predict. But it was still a really funny film. I think that the best of the films was DeKalb Elementary. One, because it is a pretty relevant story. Maybe un- pretty unintentionally so. I don't know if it'll, it's unfortunately so. In fact, it, it might be helped by what has happened recently. I, I can't tell. This is based on a real story, so, like, it's really fascinating to watch, like, how this woman diffused this gunman who was clearly mentally disturbed and mentally disabled in some way. And, you know, somehow he got a gun in his hands and he decided to shoot up an elementary school and then kill himself. But, like, she managed to, like, convince him that that he shouldn't do that and managed to, like, talk him out of it and surrender. And I think the way the film... Kind of makes you realize, oh, this is a person with, like, mental problems, and he's, like, really kind of a child, and he's a dangerous child with a gun, but he's also, like, kind of a child who. It's very complicated because we can't, like, overlook crimes committed by mentally disturbed people like this guy, but also we can see, okay... So it isn't like black and white Here like there can be A way to defuse situations If they're handled right In certain cases like this And like because This is a real life story And based on a real thing that Happened it, that also gives it some more power I mean and then again We can also say the same thing For my nephew Emmett and Watu Wote But I feel with Those stories they don't present a new perspective on something because my nephew Emmett is about the murder of Emmett Till and it's about like the fear and dread as Emmett's uncle waited and was fearful of those people who came to take Emmett away and murder him that night but I don't think it really had anything new to say about you know racial violence or what happened to Emmett Till I mean, it it showed it from the uncle's perspective, but I don't know if that was like necessarily something we didn't really know about, you know, how those people must have felt. It's good to depict it, of course. It's good to remind your, uh, ourselves of like what happened and like how scary that was for the people who experienced it. But I don't know if it was like really novel the ideas expressed in it. That doesn't mean that they weren't invaluable, but I'm just really appreciative of new ideas, new ways of thinking about something. And so in that way I probably like Watu vote the least, because even though that's also based on a true story, like it should be a foregone conclusion that, yeah, obviously people will come together to protect other people because they're good people in this world and it doesn't matter what your religion is because good people will protect other good people even if that person was like a bigot towards them at first like you it's know it's that woman's overdone message yeah that's how i felt about it it's like you know, this is based on a real story that is inspiring, reminding us of all the good in the world, and that's very cool, and that's very great to remind ourselves of that. But I do feel it was like so on the nose. Not really? on the not as on the nose as *The Silent Child*, which is a film that I really was enjoying at the beginning, but. Then it took a turn into, like, the overdone. It was like, oh, the child is not the father's child. The mother had an affair. But they don't really go into that at all. And then at the end, like, the sign language expert is, like, fired from taking care of the child. One thing I'm legitimately curious about that is that what parent is dumb enough to actually think oh, that, no. learning... that that was totally believable Warren. i, I totally believe that not learning like sign that. language yeah i <laughs> totally like believe a there are stumbling stubborn... at this point I just... No, I totally believe there are stubborn, arrogant people. Oh who yeah, I certainly, think certainly that believe way. that. But like, I mean, that's I why the know. film was made because there are people who think that way, and this film is trying to raise awareness. But I yeah. thought it was just too on the nose. I thought like the ending where well, the child. No, well, no, that's is... part of my problem though. Is that doing that type of stuff just makes it feel so on the nose because it does. The parents are putting zero initiative into actually even attempting anything. I mean, what I dislike most is. The idea, the implication that the reason why the mother takes the child away from the sign language teacher is because, you know, she felt like the sign language teacher was becoming more of a mother to her child and the child was like really thinking of the sign language teacher as her mother more so than a real mother, which rubbed her the wrong way. And so that's why she wanted to break that connection even more so than believing that her child didn't need to learn sign language. I think that petty reasoning, while still believable, was pretty forced. Yeah. And at the same time, I just feel like... This is a problem I have with basically all of the films is that they're... They feel like they're more about the message than the actual story that they're trying to tell. I mean, this film is also based on a true story. It's based on the film of the writer... And main actress, Rachel, who actually did experience this. This is actually something that happened when she was working with a deaf child. And this is something that, you know, that mother actually did. But, like, the framework around this film, like, a bunch of the details about why the parents do what they do. And, like, this whole unneeded implication that the child is... The result of an affair and that somehow is feeding into things. Like, he feels uh, very weirdly dramatized a, when it didn't really need to be. <laughs> it was overly dramatized. I yeah. mean, this is raising awareness for an important issue. It should hopefully successfully raise that message. I, cause I think that this film does do a good job in showing how sign language, uh, helps, you know, mute and deaf children, you know, learn to communicate really well and the value of that i just feel like it was a little too on the nose and i didn't really care for that and i really thought the ending was like so overdone where she like signs i love you come uh, on
0: that's like, pretty uh,
1: like honestly like my among these short films my favorite was probably the 11 o'clock simply because i felt like oh no, it, it was the one that just like gave me like legitimate enjoyment out of the 11 o'clock yeah, like, that's it, fair. It was, it I think was... that was the I, that was like the funniest film, but it like, was also... Yeah, it was predictable and stuff, but like, I, I kind of got more out of it. And you know, no matter how well the other films, how poorly the other films might have conveyed their messages, at least they had like something they wanted to say, an issue they wanted to raise awareness of. So I kind of have to put 11 o'clock down in that respect for not being so ambitious as those other films. And in that regard, like, in terms of how those other films explored their messages and their ideas, I think DeKalb Elementary was the most interesting and successful. Yeah, I feel like, especially like you said, it resonates so hard with us now, especially because mass shootings are such a big thing in the U.S., Yeah, this film really does, like, raise questions about gun ownership and how easy that is. Like, how can someone like the shooter in this story gain access to a gun when he's so clearly mentally disturbed? And also about, like, treating mental illness and uh, helping mentally disabled people like this guy who clearly did not have a reliable support system, or at least not a support system that was really keeping tabs on what he was doing and also as a system like that was able to overlook him escaping from a hospital or wherever he was and letting him run loose so i think that it definitely raises important ideas and is worth discussing and all these films do that but i think this one like explored the message the best compared to the other ones yeah for sure they're all interesting films, so I do recommend checking them up and forming your own opinions on them. But speaking of films with messages, uh, let's talk about Best Documentary Short Subject. Now, you haven't seen any of these, and I don't know if you'll be able to see any of these anytime I mean, soon. I think uh, they're being released on a video on demand after the Oscars, so... Okay, cool. Yeah. I know for a fact that Heroin is a Netflix documentary, so you can watch that pretty readily. Oh, okay, cool. But, yeah, so obviously, best documentaries, short subject, these are all true stories, so they're all very interesting, and a lot of them are very powerful stories. I guess to go in the order of how they were shown in the... Uh, theatrical screening because, you know, because of the length of these documentaries, they were separated into two programs. So the first program, there were three films and the second, there were two. And in that first program, the first film shown was Traffic Stop. This film was about the unwarranted arrest of a black teacher in Austin, Texas, back in 2013 i believe the wikipedia for this is not very helpful to remind me of, of all the names involved i do remember the white police officer's name who stopped this who stopped the woman his name was like officer richter and yeah he was a scumbag so basically the story here was this officer tailed this woman and you know, to ticket her for speeding. She stopped in the parking lot of a restaurant or a store. So, like, she she stopped on her own, and then she was confronted by this police officer who told her to sit back down in the car so he can write her the ticket. And then they got into kind of, like, an argument in the car. But she was still in the car. She was still cooperating with the officer. But at some point, you know, the officer asked her to put her feet back in the car, and she tells him... Get out of the way of the door so I can, you know, close the door. Uh, And, like, you know, he gets upset at her. And then he asks her to get out of the car so he can arrest her for nothing. For, I guess, sassing him. For, uh, I don't know, resist. He has no reason to arrest her. She committed no crime. Other than, I guess, being rude to this guy who was being rude to her. And so he forces her out of the car. He grabs her and from the car and throws her down on the ground violently. And violently is like trying to arrest her and causing physical pain towards her. And it's like really uncomfortable stuff. They show the actual camera footage. The actual footage of what happened that oh, day Jesus. and what, what went down. So this isn't recreated stuff. They show the actual stuff that happened here. And probably the more disturbing, okay, so he violently like assaults her and then like arrests her for nothing. And then he calls in another officer on the scene and they conspire. They conspire. This is, there's no doubts about it. Like they are conspiring to validate this guy's story to make it out so that that woman is in a in the wrong, and she's being rightfully arrested when she is, you know, being wronged by these people. The police, the other police officers are corroborating with this guy's story for their own justice. They knew full well that what happened, what, what went down was probably bullshit, right? Because they're, they're asking, you know, oh, uh, is this on the, the camera? And they're like, oh, maybe, you know, and they're like, they're trying to cover this up. You, you see them clearly friends. trying to cover this up. But these, and this is actual footage here. This is actual, this is what actually happened. And what's more disturbing is when she's being driven away to jail, you know, and and she's having a conversation with the guy that is driving her, which is like a completely different guy. They called it a scene. She was, you know, making a fuss. Oh, God. Like when they were forcing her into the car, like a comment one of the police officers says is, man, she has some fight in her. Like a flippant humorous remark about violently pushing this woman into this car, this police car. It's like. So aggravating. So awful. But the most aggravating thing is the conversation she has with the police officer who's driving her to the police station. Where, she, you know, they're talking about racism. And, like, this cop says, you know why people are afraid of black people? It's because of violence in the black community. Now, I'm not saying that is true. But 99% of the time, when you hear stories... Uh, you're you're hearing about violence in the black community. So people think black people are violent. I want you to think about that. I, I want you to think about how wrong you are for being black. Because black people are so violent. And racism goes both ways. Don't you think that black people can be racist towards white people? It's like, oh my god. Were all these cops white too? I don't know the race of the last one, but... Yeah, all the other cops were white men. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, so all this, like, the footage of everything that went down, what happened to her, is just so infuriating and aggravating. And I wanted to like this film more because of that. I wanted to like this film because of what it showed, like this real footage that it showed. But unfortunately, I felt that the other footage framed around these scenes was not very moving because all the other uh, stuff in this film that isn't like the real life footage of what happened to her is like stuff showing about uh, showing her life and like how great a person she is and like oh she's this this, such a wonderful person isn't it awful about how this happened to her But it really has nothing to do that with It just like, seems like so unnecessary too because the, Yeah it
0: seems unnecessary because like, that footage she was, alone
1: seems like It's no justification to be like Yeah, yeah. this is fucking wrong These guys are just power hungry pieces of sh- Shit who love their white privilege <laughs> Yeah she was wrongfully Arrested but it doesn't matter That she's this college graduate and great teacher or Like even if she was like This poor jobless person Like, she would still be wrongfully arrested in that situation. It doesn't matter, like, how great a person you are or how accomplished you are. When you are wronged by racism, by a racist system, and a system that is conspiring against you to cover up their own racism, you are wronged. And it doesn't matter, like, how great your accomplishments are before that. Because that doesn't make it any more just. So I really felt the film undermined its own message by having that, like, self-filating depiction of this woman and like she is a pretty cool woman like she seems pretty cool but i I think that was like it sent an unintentional wrong message to like say oh look how great this person it is isn't it awful how this happened to her because of racism because like this film is more than about her this is like further evidence of an epidemic that is hurting so many people and the film should have been about that in a more broader scale i feel The next film shown after this was Edith and Eddie, which was the story of a really old interracial couple, a couple who met each other in their 80s and married in their 90s, actually. And like how they were torn apart because of Edith's selfish daughter who wanted to sell off Edith's home for money and Tread to split the couple apart and did split the couple apart because she took away her home and sold it and so she took Edith all the way to Florida with plans to take it take her from her home and you know separating her from Eddie and just leaving Eddie uh, without Edith even though you know Edith, Edith did not want to go and they told her they didn't want to go and they refused but Her daughter and the person that they called in to be Edith's guardian, who had never met Edith until the night that she brought a bunch of cops to take her away to put her on a plane to Florida without her consent, never met Edith before that night. Never had a conversation with her before that night. So they split up Edith and Eddie, and Eddie is hospitalized two weeks later. And then die shortly afterwards. And they wouldn't even let Edith come to see Eddie when he was sick in the hospital. And they didn't... They didn't come... She didn't, they didn't let her come to see Eddie when he passed away. And they still... At the time this film was made, they still didn't make the funeral plans for Eddie. And she still hasn't seen him. And Edith has... Uh, Alzheimer's you know so that's another layer of well she was like really really connected with reality when she was with Eddie like Eddie was like you know helping her stay in touch with her memories so separating her from Eddie you know was devastating in that respect too and like the idea that she might forget Eddie because she because she's a part from him. And no one is taking good care of her. Because you know another reason she didn't want to go to Florida. Is because her daughter's husband. It was a violent abuser. Who mistreated her in the past. And she did not want to be around her. him. So who knows what's happening to her. You know it's just. Such a sickening story. That they broke this old couple. This old happy couple apart. For such selfish reasons. And the scene where, like, Eddie is telling the guardian, some guardian she is, of Edith, that she is a monster and she's evil for what she's doing and she has no heart because, you know, one day she'll be... she He also tells this to, you know, uh, Edith's daughter. that You know, one day she'll be old and she'll regret the way people are treating her, like, the way she's treating her own mother and the way, you know, this guardian is treating Edith. And, like... The fucking Guardian, she laughs it off and says, Oh, you know what? I am thinking of Edith's best interest. And it's like, fuck you. I, I literally muttered that under my breath in the theater. Because it was just... then this is like a real actual conversation. You know? Because this is they actually recorded this. They had, like, mics in that room when this happened. Because the documentary was like you know, being set up as this was all taking progress. So they got all of this. Like, they got all of this in real time. And it's just so sickening and so awful. And I hope, like, that guardian, that horrid important guardian of eat it and, like, her her daughter who ripped her away from her husband... I hope that, you know, they see some serious backlash now that this film is out. And they understand how how in the wrong they were. And they can't live with a guilt-free conscience. Because what they did was just so despicable. So wrong. And and so this film really really raises a great point of, like, the abuse of elders. How we are ignoring their rights and mistreating them is just such... A disgusting problem. So yeah, this film really got me worked up, really made me mad. But the next film in, that was shown in the program, uh "Heaven is a Traffic Jam" on four or five, probably affected me the most emotionally because it was like a pretty powerful story about this like artist who is like pretty mentally challenged and. You know, she's recounting her life experiences and like her kind of awful history with her mother who like was repulsed pulsed by her as a child and her father abused her as a child. And it's implied he might have sexually abused her as a child, even though like she, you know, doesn't want to believe it. But when she was a child, she drew this picture of, you know, him with a with a large penis and and her crying. And it's it's like, oh, what happened to make her draw that? This is scary stuff. But ultimately, you know, even with how, like, a mess her childhood was and all the struggles with depression she she had, ultimately the film is uplifting because, you know, she channels all her emotions through her art, and she makes legitimately interesting art and unique art. And at the end of the film, she has this art show, which a lot of people attend, and that's, like, really validating... And, like, really shows just how far she's come. And, like, how appreciated, like, she is. And, like, how she's really learned to make the most out of her life. And, like, how that has reaped benefits. Like, the title of the film is about her appreciating a traffic jam. You know, and finding, like, pleasure and the good things about that. So, you know, there's really a lot to respect about this woman's outlook on life. And it's, like, kind of a really moving story. So, I, I really appreciate it. And... Uh, uh, uh like that. The artist's name is uh Mil- Mindy Alper, by the way, if you wanna check out her art. She did like sculptures and drawings and they were pretty interesting. So then in uh program B, and I know that I'm talking a lot about this, but I kinda have to describe this to V Lord. And also because like I wanna <laughs> talk I need to talk about them because I had so many thoughts. So many thoughts. Well the next one is left, the- like you only totally on one left? I have two left. Wait, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Heroin is the Netflix documentary, and that was also sort of like a good look at, you know, the drug problem in the city with, like, the biggest drug problem in the world, Huntington, West Virginia, where the overdose rate is ten times the national average. And it follows, like, various police, judges, and nonprofits helping people with addiction and encouraging them to recover. And the main kind of character, like, the main Point of view is the fire chief Jan Ratter, and actually, the, the documentary shows her career before becoming chief and then when she becomes chief. So, it's very interesting to be able to capture that moment too, which is pretty a story because she's like the first female fire chief in that city and perhaps the state. I can't. Remember if that they made a point of that. But, you know, this was also like a good look of like how, how uh, police and uh, the law system and, you know, just local people were trying to help these addicts recover. And, you know, there were some failure stories. There are dead bodies that we do see very tragically. But there are there is also like a very powerful, you know, inspiring case of someone Jan helped who, you know, comes to visit, to, you know, attend her, you know, coronation as fire chief. And, you know, she calls out to him and says, you know, I owe a lot to Mickey and, you know, the relationship we've had and, like, you know, how helping him has taught me so much. And, you know, Mickey is crying, you know, because he values, like, how Janice, like, really saved his life. So it was a really touching moment there. It was really... Good look at this problem and how you know law enforcement and the judicial system and just people are trying to help curb this epidemic which is you know still an incredible problem but you know something that it feels like they're making progress towards solving at least the film is optimistic about it and then finally we have knife skills which is about this restaurant That was founded by an ex-convict and is staffed entirely by ex-convicts. Like, the idea of this restaurant is that it is a training program to help rehabilitate people recently out of prison and teach them skills in cooking, and especially high-class French cooking. So the restaurant is called Edwin's Leadership and Restaurant Institute... And it shows, like, the journey of, you know, the initial class of people who were, you know, brought on to become staff at Edwin's. And they started with, like, 80 people, and by the end, they only got to about 35. But those were 35 people who, you know, when we see, like, their graduation ceremony and, like, all that, you know, they have learned from this and how this has really changed their life, you know, it does feel like, wow, this is... Quite the inspiring thing. And you know there are people who fall off the track. And we do follow them. But also the movie is like a little more hopeful about them as well. Like you know they're going to also try and rehabilitate their lives. And one guy who you know originally leaves Edwin's on bad terms with the restaurant manager. Eventually is able to you know make amends and be accepted back into the program. Although he you know isn't accepted back into the current program. So he misses out on the graduation with all the other people he started out with. But, you know, hopefully, I don't know if this guy ended up completing the program in a second go-around, but hopefully he did, because it seemed like he was really affected by the fact that he missed out on, you know, this great thing, this, like, real accomplishment, and he wanted to have that for himself. So that was a really cool story about this really cool restaurant that I want to visit someday. Edwin's Leadership and Restaurant, Fine French Dining. It's in Cleveland, Ohio. It's still going strong, and yeah, I would want to visit it one day. So, I guess now that I've gone s- through the trouble of explaining all these films <laughs> in detail, which, you know, this is probably the longest we're going to spend on any of these categories, simply because I needed, I, I've had so much thoughts on these films that I wanted to talk about them in detail. But, uh, I mean, actually I'm curious, Lord, like, based on what I've said about all these films, which sounded the most interesting to you? I don't know, I guess the knife skills one sounded pretty interesting. But I guess that was also the most recent one you heard about, so maybe you forgot about the other no, one. I feel like these are things I probably would have to watch for myself just to see, like, how I think yeah. of them. I mean, I do recommend them because, honestly, I, I enjoyed all of them a lot. I think they were all great. I mean, I guess Traffic Stop I had some real problems with, but I still think it's worth seeing for, like, the actual live camera footage of what happened when this woman was arrested and how long it was. But I think my favorite, the one I want to win, or at least, yeah, the one I want to win is Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. Because that definitely affected me the most personally, in terms of how I connected with that woman's story. And it was also, like, the most, like, interestingly edited, because, like, the film uses interesting animation techniques, as well as, like like, very interesting... Cinematic tricks to convey this The woman's emotions And like her sense Her anxieties and her claustrophobia And like so in terms of like just Also like film editing And cinematography I also think it was like Very astounding so that's another reason why I think it deserves the win But honestly I would be fine with pretty much any of these winning, because they were all very incredibly made documentaries. I mean, I guess Traffic Stop, again, would be the one that I would be least happy about winning, but it's still an important story that needs to be seen by a lot of people and does deserve recognition and attention, so I still wouldn't mind. But you have one feature documentary that you saw that you want to talk about, if I'm not mistaken, v lord. Yeah, so among the best documentaries that I saw... Uh, the only one I was able to see was uh uh Faces Places that that it was a pretty interesting film uh it's about a, a two photo French photographers a- Agnes uh, Varda and uh, J R and Agnes, Agnes Varda has been uh basically in the kind of film and uh, photography industry in France for several decades like she's won lots of awards in both film and just like photography contests and J R is kind of an up and coming more like modern photographer in the current landscape in France. So the film itself is about uh, both Varda and JR kind of visiting these rural areas in France and kind of just interacting with the communities. And like, yeah, whenever they go to a town, they work together with the people in the town to build these large portraits of the people and pla- plaster onto the buildings so that hmm. they can be remembered. And it's just kind of a very interesting film because, like, you they go to like several towns. They kind of talk about the story of these people, what their lives are like, what keeps them going. And it kind of it just kind of feels it feels like a very kind of like nice journey. And uh, the music is great. The visuals are extremely colorful. And just in recent memory, it's probably one of the most like vibrant films I've seen. Like, I guess, in terms of, like, recently. And yeah, all around, it was just a fun, like, documentary. Awesome. I actually plan to see it this weekend, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, all these other documentaries, too, are pretty easily accessible. Like, uh, three of them are on Netflix. I actually think that all of them except Faces Places, are on Netflix, because I checked recently. Is Faces... is, Is Abacus on Netflix now? I thought it was only on Amazon Prime. Hmm. Oh, actually, it might be on Amazon Prime. I don't know. Yeah, how. But yeah, Strong Island, Icarus, and Last Man in Aleppo are all on Netflix. Alright, well, we have Amazon Prime, so we can still see that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Faces Places is the only one I need to really teeter to see, and then I can watch the rest on Netflix, hopefully sometime in the future. So yeah, this is the, one of the two categories where I have not seen any of the films in the next one being, you know, the next category best foreign film. But I do plan to see all the films in these categories, and then maybe at some point we might share our thoughts on them in the future. Yeah, i was fun to see Fantastic Woman probably tomorrow, and then Insult I missed my chance to see it over here, but hopefully it comes on like Netflix or Amazon or something soon. I think The Square. The Square is already, like, for, up for rent on uh, Amazon, so I might watch that. But, like, I, I think that's about it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have the opportunity to see all the best foreign films, so I definitely want to take that opportunity, while I still can. Because they won't be in deeded forever, spe- once the Oscars are, are over, I'm sure. Yeah, so next category. Yeah, next category. The Best Animated Feature Film. We got the Boss Baby, the Breadwinner, Coco, Ferdinand, and Loving Vincent. I don't know why I read it out. Those all out like so fast and, <laughs> and flippantly when I gave such grandeur to all the other, you know, announcements. Um, uh,
0: okay. Especially uh,
1: since I... I I love three of these films Breadwinner, Coco, and Loving Vincent are incredible But Sid, the best movie is Boss Baby I don't know what you're talking about That's a meme Boss Baby is not a bad film It's pretty enjoyable it's Cookies just not... are for closers, Sid
0: Cookies <laughs> yeah. are for closers That's <laughs> a funny line I don't know what you want from me It's a funny line uh, it's, it's a meme But uh, yeah, Boss Baby
1: is, is a meme of a movie you know, that's how people treat it. More people know it from memes than actually have seen the movie. But it's a, it's a decent movie. It's not best animated feature quality in my eyes, but it's fine. Uh, you what know, they, they really also, should have put on, there's the emoji movie. No. Ferdinand's also probably fine. I, I didn't get a chance to see it because that left teeters really quickly. Yeah, it just shot out of there. Yeah, so I did not have a chance to see that. It's not on streaming yet, so. But I don't think that any of these movies hold a candle to Loving Vincent. Yeah, Loving Vincent's the best one, hands down. Yeah, I mean, we're about an agreement. That in that, terms of like, what's gonna win, it's gonna be Coco. Cause, yeah, yeah, and that's not undeserved because Coco is a great movie. But like Loving Vincent is like a, such an artistic accomplishment. It's the first animated feature that is like fully hand painted fully traditionally painted it's like so beautiful an incredible yeah. an artistic accomplishment, because this is like, most of the people working on this film weren't like trained animators, they were trained artists, and that really shows, because they are recreating like actual Van Gogh paintings, like every background, every character design is based on a Van Gogh painting, and it's just an incredible tribute to the man's life and legacy and exploring the idea of why did he die, or like what drove him to commit suicide, and it's just so fascinating, yeah, definitely, and honestly like i'm I'm really glad that this is getting so much attention that it has, especially like the Academy Awards is very anti uh rotoscope for several years they refused to acknowledge it, acknowledge it as like legitimate animation. Because the Academy knows jack shit about animation. I feel that they couldn't ignore the subject of this film, though. Because it's about an incredibly respected artist. And the Academy loves movies about artists. Yeah. Especially period pieces about artists. And, like, this film, again, is, like, incredible accomplishment. And it is, like, fully traditionally painted. So that's That's another, like, like, point of Insanely impressive. It's just, like, again, as an animator... The technical accomplishments of this movie are mind-blowing to me. It's, like, insane. I really want this film to get the award because of the level of craft and skill on display here because that is it's so masterful. And the story is nothing to The shy either. It's an incredibly interesting story. And Coco is a well-deserved winner, too. I, I definitely think that because it is also, like, very... You know, it, they keep pushing of, the bar. It's one of Disney... Pixar's, like, best films in recent years. Yeah, I mean, like, the way they depicted, like, the City of the Dead is incredible. Like, there's so many layers to that scene. And, like, it has a really powerful emotional center. So it's, like, it's a great film that I totally would enjoy seeing win. But I would love to see loving Winston win. Yeah, we all would. Well, all of us who have seen it at the very least, which so everyone, so everyone who isn't the Academy, (laughs) literally no one else who I follow who is reviews movies and talked about the Oscars saw Loving Vincent. That surprises me. Not Brad Jones, not Monkey Jones, not Chris Stuckman, not the Psychology in Seattle podcast. No one. It's pretty easily accessible too and it's like not that expensive on like Amazon or anywhere yeah but
0: no one's gonna
1: have their way to watch it they didn't know what it was until it got nominated for the award, and only that the people surprises who surprises me, and only the people who really care about seeing every movie that gets nominated for Oscars are gonna go out and see it. So, like most audiences, do not know what Loving Vincent is, and that is like a crime travesty. That is a travesty. If you have not seen Loving Vincent, I am ashamed that I did not edit our podcast on it before this, so that you would know why you should watch that movie. But I'm gonna say right here. Right Right now that go out and watch it because that is the best animated movie of last year. Without a doubt, that needs to win best. I don't care about your anime movies that you feel were snubbed from the Oscars. You know what? Loving Winston is a better film than your name. It is a better film than A Silent Voice.
0: It is a better film than In This Corner of the World. And it deserves respect and attention and support. So
1: go on and watch it. Just do it. Yeah. Do you agree with my assessment that it was better than all those uh, anime movies that got snubbed for the Oscars? I mean, I think that they should have been there instead of Boss Baby and fucking Ferdinand, but. Yeah, we can both agree on that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, loving Vincent, yeah, it's good. It's amazing. Yep, we're everyone in agreement on that, so let's move on to Best Adapted Screenplay. We've got Call Me By Your Name, written by James Ivory, based on the novel by Andre Ackman. We have The Disaster Artist, written by Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber, based on the book by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. We have got Logan, screenplay by Scott Frank James Mangold. Michael Green, story by James Mangold, based on X-Men characters. We've got Molly's Game... Written by Aaron Sorkin, based on the memoir by Molly Bloom. And we've got Mudbound, written by Virgil Williams and D. Ray's based on a novel by Hillary Jordan. Hmm. Among these, I'd probably have to give it to Logan. You know, it's hard for me to really call this category when you haven't read, like, the source material it's based on. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's and true. And I, I haven't read the source material for any of this stuff. I guess if we're just solely basing off the screenplay itself, though, I guess... I don't know, like... I've like, always read it. I mean, you, you've you seen Disaster Artists, so you've seen one more film in this category than I have. I have not seen Disaster Artists or Molly's Game. I was going to see Molly's Game, but then I just completely forgot to see it. <laughs> yeah, I got out of theaters before I ended up seeing it. Yeah, Disaster Artist was good. I feel that, uh... I guess, if anything, it, it do- definitely does draw... I feel like it dramatizes what, uh... Greg Sestero and, uh... And Tommy was so kind of went through before the film came out. I heard it sanitizes what they went yeah, through. Yeah, okay, like, like in they some They depict parts. Tommy as a way better person Yeah, than they, Greg they, that, did. that part, they, they do sanitize, but, like, the, they do try to, like, put this drama in where, like, Greg starts, like, fighting with Tommy, like, right before the film is finished. That wasn't in the book from what i understand that's not in the book from talking to people and from Brad Jones's review okay yeah but um overall i liked it but it's not like it's it's a really good film and mm-hmm. it, it's even more enhanced if you've seen like the room like right before it which i also have not seen yeah like i'd say definitely go watch the room before you see disaster artist because yeah that's the reason i didn't want to see disaster artist is because i haven't seen the room and, uh, unfortunately, the theater that I was planning to go see the room in closed down before I could see it, so. Rip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rip the, uh, Sunshine Landmark Cinema. This is why you should have paired up with Movie MoviePass Landmark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me see your movies for free. I could save it even more,
1: but... <laughs> I don't know how that would save a theater that was losing money. Because more people would go because technically they wouldn't be spending money. Uh, yeah, I guess if they buy concessions. Well, no, they still pay full price. MoviePass pays them for the tickets full price. Oh, okay. So they, they don't lose money off the tickets. Then how does MoviePass earn money? They sell data. Oh, okay. Man, data must be really valuable if it can cover up all those costs. Ew. So I, I'd really have to give this for Logan, just based off that narrative, because it feels like the definitive Wolverine story. And, like, just the sheer adrenaline and emotion in, in that narrative, like, just from, like, Wolverine's journey in that film is just so great. It's, it really... Changes your perspective on what superhero movies can be. Well, I don't want to go that far and say, Oh, this film changed what superhero movies could be. Because they could always have been anything. Well, it's just yeah, that people I mean, didn't like, think it, it that they changes, could be like this. It changes how... You think Hollywood can handle them. Yeah, exactly. And actually I am going to give it to Logan too, because unlike with these other screenplays, Logan is basically an original screenplay that is based on elements from its source material, but it isn't actually, you know, a direct adaptation of that source material. It's like inspired by that source yeah. material. But it is like more of like an original assembly of those ideas. Yeah, Yeah, I think it takes, like, elements from, like, the X-23 storylines and then mixes it together with some other original content. So, while there was a lot of material to draw from, the screenplay of the film, the final product, really reflects the level of writing skill of the writers involved. Even more so than the other screenplays, which are based on strong source material... And while those writers did bring that to life for a screenplay, like, I think Logan had, you know, to go the extra mile since it wasn't, like, directly adapting its source material, but, like, assembling a new story out of it. Yeah, and I'd, I'd agree with that. So let's move on to talk about a best original screenplay. We've got... Nominated are The Big Sick, written by Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. Get Out, written by Jordan Peele. Lady Bird, written by Greta Gerwig. The Shape of Water, screenplay by Gilmore Del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. Story by Gilmore Del Toro. And Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, written by Martin McDonough. I'd probably have to give this to Get Out. Hmm... These are all pretty strong screenplays. I haven't seen The Big Sick, so I can't. I've heard really good things about The Big Sick, but I still yeah. Have I also to watch I it. also have heard really good things. I know Brad Jones really liked it. Yeah, I, I mean, I like uh, I like Johnny as an actor, so I, I'd assume that his screenplay writing is probably pretty good too. <laughs> yeah, I think these are all really well-written screenplays. The ones that I've seen. But I guess I will have to agree with you, Willard. Get Out is probably the most original of these screenplays. Yeah, I feel Get Out just does a great job of, I think, like, really kind of taking all these elements together. Kind of the, like, action you really want from, like, a thriller. The tension. The kind of just overall tone of a horror film. But t- then taking a twist on it and adding these elements kind of, like these themes about racism and really kind of uh, I guess flipping flipping a switch of sorts to kind of make its own unique more unique spin on what a horror film is yeah it was one of the most effective horror films for me in a while because it was rooted in something that felt very real and honestly another great strength of the screenplay is that it is very funny oh yeah I mean it's it's Jordan Peele like yeah he has a great sense of humor yeah, J- Jordan Peele has always, I think, had, like, a great talent as a comedian. I mean, if you remember Keanu from, like, I think, Jesus, 2016, that film was hilarious. And his stand-up mm-hmm. stuff and just stuff that he's done for Comedy Central and all that stuff has all been great. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess we're brought in agreement that Get Out should win. yeah. Then let's move on to Best Supporting Actress. And the nominees are Mary J. Bleach for Mudbound as Florence Jackson. Allison Janey for I, Tonya as LaVonna Golden. Leslie Manville for Phantom Tread as Cyril Woodcock. Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird as Marion McPherson. And Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water as Zelda Delilah Fuller. Hmm. This is a tough one for me. I'd I'd say maybe I'd have to give it to Allison Janney in I, Tanya. for Tanya's mom. Yeah, for Tanya's mom. She was a very well acted character. What did you like most about her as a performance? I think I just really liked how she kind of just stuck to the. She just hated it really like well the like whole like kind of just like kind of stuck up like uh, shitty mother <laughs> mother type uh, I guess. I guess, stereotype character. And I, I feel like the comedy bits with her, her two were also just really good. But at the same time, you could also really tell that, oh God, she really is a terrible person. hmm Yeah. I, I mean, the character is great, and I think the performance is great. But I don't know if it's the strongest one. Uh, one thing I want to say is that I am very happy that Mary J. Blige was nominated for Mudbound. And uh, not uh, Carrie Mulligan for the, her role as Laura... McAllen in that film, though I I don't know. Maybe the reason she wasn't nominated was because technically, Laura McAllen is considered a main heroine. I don't know. I I wouldn't say that. Probably. Uh, but that's kind of odd to me because like both families on that movie have like equal importance. So like I don't know how you would qualify which one of those two actresses. Should go to best actress and best supporting actress. Regardless, I'm glad that Mary J. Blitch was nominated for her role as Florence Jackson because that was a very well acted character. I don't think it was, uh, the best of these roles or like, you know, the best, even, it wasn't really even the best performance in that film. So it's kind of weird that it was the only uh performance nomination from that film because like man i would think that you know, jason mitchell's role as Ronso or garrett helen's role as jamie mcallen or yeah I, I would think those would be the ones to choose i don't know in any case I actually think that Best Actress should go to Laurie Metcalf for Marion McPherson because I think that was a very interesting and nuanced character that was really brought to life and expertly like portrayed in a way that felt real by McPherson. Because with Lavanya Golden, you know that felt like a caricature, like it was an entertaining caricature, but it felt like a caricature. And then. All the other characters, Cyril, Flora, and Zelda, they were interesting people, but they weren't necessarily real-feeling people. They were like—they still felt like characters, but Marion felt like a person to me. Like, that felt like a real mother to me. And I think that Laurie Metcalf really, really brought that goal to life and made it like... You know, because Lady Bird's relationship with her mother is one of... Is the central thesis of that film. It's, like, the main relationship. So everything ro- rode on, like, how good those two performances were. And, you know, she played her half on it expertly. I-, I definitely have to give it to Laurie Metcalf here. Hmm. Well, okay. What's your opinion on her role as Marion McPherson? I-, I really liked her. I mean, I, I feel that she... Like, I agree with, like, most of what you said. Like, I also, I guess, additionally, I also feel like she just did, like, a very good kind of job of really kind of feeling like this realistic mother, like, in her situation, like, both, like, with, like, her daughter's, like, Lady Bird's dissatisfaction with her own life and her not really being able to be openly emotional with her hmm yeah i agree and that's why i really loved her performance again that felt like a real mother and you know since the film was trying to really connect with like a real situation a situation that felt well and you know it was inspired by the director's own experiences so you know those actresses really brought that those experiences to life i felt so yeah, let's sure. talk about the Best Supporting Actor. And the nominees are William Defoe for The Florida Project as Bobby Hicks, Woody Harrelson for Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri as Chief Bill Willoughby, Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water as Giles, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World as j Balgetty, Getty, and Sam Rockwell for Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri as Officer Jason Dixon. Hmm, now these are all pretty strong performances. The lesser of these performances is probably Giles, which is, even though that was a character I really loved, I don't think that was as major a character as these other roles, or like as nuanced a character in terms of the range of what the actor had to do to portray that role. I I, I feel that's actually unfair, because Giles is a character with a lot of nuance and depth, but, you know, just compared to the other characters here, there was just more with them. To really dig into and more with them, the actors really had to bring out of them. Christopher Plummer, I actually think, will get the award for J. Paul Getty. Like, I actually, think the Oscars will give it to him. Wanted to make a statement against Kevin Spacey, who was originally going, playing the role and they had shot all his scenes as him, but then you know the controversy came out uh, about his sexual harassment crimes. So Ridley Scott made this decision to, you know, remove all of the Kevin Spacey's scenes from the movie and recast J. Paul Getty with Christopher Plummer. And they managed to do that in like two weeks, I think. It was a really short turnaround time. So just for that incredible accomplishment alone, for salvaging that movie that would have been box office poison otherwise, if it had retained Kevin Spacey after that controversy... I think the Oscars are going to award Christopher Plummer for that accomplishment. And especially to make a statement against Kevin Spacey. If only All the Money in the World was actually a good movie. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't care for All the Money in the World. But I will say that I do think Christopher Plummer was good as J. Paul Getty. And I wouldn't be disappointed if he won Best Supporting Actor because he did the role very well. Yeah, I guess personally my favorite among these, I guess, is probably Sam Rockwell as Jason Dixon. Yeah, even though I had problems with that character, like Sam Rockwell's performance as Dixon was really, really incredible. He really brought that role to life in a major way. Yeah, and, and I mean, I also really liked Wallaby as well. It's uh, it's yeah. kind of surprising to see that three billboards got. Two different supporting actor nominations. I don't think it's very surprising because those roles are just so stand out performances. Hmm, I mean that that is true, yeah. But uh, I'd say if it, if it was between Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, I'd have to give that to Sam Rockwell. And that's a pretty good choice and you know maybe he will win it but I'm going to choose actually Willem Dafoe because even though I have a lot of problems with the Florida project Willem Dafoe's role as Bobby Hicks was my favorite thing about it so that was a very fascinating character and you know the way we see him like both you know have to be harsh with these his his tenants and you know have to deal with these kind of annoying kids but also stand up for them and try to protect them in his own way I think it was a really really fascinating role and I think Willem Dafoe really expressed that range and he was my favorite thing about that movie so just because I loved I really liked him so much in that movie and he stood out to me so much because he was the thing I liked most about that movie I'm gonna give him my nod for best supporting actor but I do think that Bode-Wordy Harrelson and Sam Rock were, were really incredible for their roles as well. But I also think that Chris Wolf Plummer is the one who will actually win. Because that just makes sense in terms of, like, the Oscar making a statement and whatever. Yeah. So I guess next category. Moving on to the best, the best. The top four categories, a.k.a. the categories people care about the most. <laughs> And we're going to start with Best Actress. For nominated for Best Actress are Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water as Elisa Esposito. Frances McDormand for Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri as Mildred Hayes. Margot Robbie for I, Tonya as Tanya Harding. Saudis Ronan for Lady Bird as Christine Ladybird McPherson. And Meryl Streif for The Post as Katherine Graham. So the lesser of these roles, I feel, is... Meryl Streep's role as Katrin Graham because, you know, Meryl Streep she has like the most Oscar nominations in history or whatever. I think like whatever she does, they give her a nomination. And, Basically, you know, she was funny. fine as Katrin Graham I guess, but it's not like a standout role for her. Yeah, I mean, The Post in my opinion was just kind of like one of those middle-of-the-road movies. Like, it, it's good, but it's not like particularly like amazing. Yeah, I think it I didn't think her performance in particular really added much to that movie. I yeah. think they could have actually gotten someone better than her to play that role, but I don't Maybe. know. Maybe. I mean, I guess, like, I, I really like Tom Hanks in that movie. Yeah, yeah, Tom Hanks was good. He was my favorite part about that movie. Yeah, Tom, Tom Hanks is what sells that movie for me. <laughs> yeah. Meryl Streep was, like, okay, but I don't know. It's not really anything Yeah, it's a shame amazing. since, like, she should have been the main character of that film. It should have been about her, but it It's not really, it's more about Tom Hanks. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's some problems with that movie. But in any case, hmm, this is a hard one. Because for me, I think the other four contenders are really, really good. I mean, Sally Hawkins, because she's depicting a character who is mute and has to communicate through body language, I feel like there's just so much work required of that. And I think she just did it expertly. But at the same time, Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding makes that movie. Her performance makes yeah. that film. And Frances McDormand as Mildred Hayes also kind of makes that film in its own way too. I mean, not as much as Margot Robbie as Tanya. But what's your opinion, Lord? This is a tough one because I like all the remaining four. Maybe I'd have to give to Sally Hawkins simply because, like you said, she's playing a mute character and just conveying all the emotions and all the just things that her character is feeling is just so much more difficult. And she and she pulls it off like fantastically. Man, I totally agree with you. But man, a lot of these actresses actresses would be well deserving of my award. I think I will give it to Tanya Harding. I I will give it to Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding because I really do think that she made that film. like More than any of these other actresses, I think that that film would be so much lesser. It would not work if Margot Robbie hadn't been as good as she was as Tanya Harding. So I'm going to give it to her. Mm. And now we go on to best actor. We have Nominated for Best Actor, Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name is Elio Perlman. We have Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Tread is Reynolds Woodcock. Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out is Chris Washington. Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour is Winston Churchill. And Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire is Roman J. Israel. I have not seen Roman J. Israel. I heard that it is not a very good movie. I'm sure Denzel Washington is fine in it. Same for Darkest Hour, which I have seen. Gary Oldman was fine in that, but I didn't really think that was a very good movie, and I didn't, you know, think that performance was like... I mean, it might have been the most interesting part about that movie, I guess, but I don't know. I, I, I don't think like it was so integral that I couldn't imagine anyone else portray Winston Churchill. Daniel Kaluuya as Chris Washington. He did really good in that role. I really liked that character. I really felt for him, but also not as standout to me as like a as a performance. Timothy Chalamet as Elio Perlman. Yeah, I mean that guy. Man, that crying scene alone, you know that that, that had earned him the nomination. I think Timothy Chalamet is my pick for this easily in my opinion, simply because he does such a good job of really depicting a person of his age, a teenager, who is kind of in this kind of more confused stage in his life, he is not really sure about his own sexuality, about his own life, or really his own emotions, and he just does such a great job of depicting that kind of youth, that that transition to maturity, but yet still immature. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the one scene where he's like, I think it's like an orange or whatever, and he's like jacking. It's a peach. Up. Wait, is it it's peach? A peach? Okay, it's yeah. a peach. Yeah, he's after after he has sex with uh, what I I forget the guy's name, but after he has sex with him and him just trying to masturbate in the peach to just make sure that he can still function sexually because it's implied that he was I think bottoms in the intercourse, but. Like, it's just such kind of this interesting scene and kind of really powerful, regardless of how ridiculous it sounds and how they kind of joke about it in the film. Because this this is the type of stuff that, like, just mentally a lot of the kids go through who are part of, like, the LGBT community and stuff like that. And as someone who identifies as bisexual, I think his character really kind of hit me, hit me at home, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way as you in all those respects. But I'm going to give it to Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds Woodcock because that was the most fascinating character to me out of all of these characters. And I think that is because of how Daniel Day-Lewis portrays him as this kind of guy you can't figure out, as this guy wrapped around so many enigmatic layers that it's, like, hard to pin him down. And he feels, like, dangerous but seductive at the same time. And it's just really fascinating to see how that character's mind works and, like, how it twists and turns. And I think Daniel Day-Lewis really, really sold that character in a way that I can't imagine anyone else being that character. And also, I think... Daniel Day-Lewis will get the Oscar for this because this is supposedly his final role. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that'll end up being true. He might... Because Daniel Day-Lewis trolls Retire as much as Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, I mean, the but, guy's uh, only 60. He'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. I, I do think that I really liked him as uh, Reynolds Woodcock, and yeah, that was my favorite performance of all these, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i not a big fan of Phantom Thread, but I I, I definitely enjoyed Daniel Day and Lewis's performance as Woodcock. Yeah. Like, I feel like, yeah, like you said, it, it's really hard to pin down what he's thinking. That, that's part of the most interesting part of the film for me, is that many of these characters, there's, like, a lot of mystery around what they're really feeling, what they're really kind of imagining around them, and I, I feel like the payoff at the end is kind of disappointing for me, but the entire journey of it is really cool. I love the payoff. The payoff is like... <laughs>
0: what the makes payoff. the movie.
1: The payoff is more weird, if anything, to me. No, it's, like it's the amazing.
0: It's like double masochism, Sid. Yes, and that's what's so <laughs> awesome about it. They're both so messed up and it's amazing. I love it so much. It's so awesome. She's poisoning him and she's totally into it. It's such a messed up relationship. Honestly, when that
1: happened in the movie, my entire theater just started laughing. Oh man, I wish I had been in a theater that was as reactive as yours was then. I I saw it at a time where there were like few other people. To be fair, it was kind of a shitty screening because like the girl next to me kept talking to her dad. And oh. I was on her phone. I just wanted to, like, tell oh. her to shut up. But I didn't want to, like, cause a scene or anything.
0: <laughs> God, those people are
1: the worst. Yeah, yeah. well, but, uh, yeah. So it's too much for you, Daniel Day-Lewis for me. And we'll uh, see who wins. Because I think those are definitely the top two competitors for Best Actor, for sure. Yeah. But let's move on to Best Director! We've got Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Tread, and Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. I'd probably have to give it to del Toro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's either between him and Christopher Nolan, because those those films had like such a strong vision to them that was so expertly communicated and handled by their directors, but I liked The Shape of Water and what it was doing more than I, what I liked with what Nolan was doing with Dunkirk, even though I do think, you know, Dunkirk is a great piece of cinema. Like, as a film, I enjoyed what Gilmore de Toro did with Shape of Water a whole lot more. Dunkirk is is, is, one, is probably, like, one of Nolan's best films, just from a directorial perspective, but yeah. I feel... With Shape of Water and Del Toro, he he really has taken his experience and really, really filled it into this film. Like, you can really kind of just, shot by shot, everything just looks fantastic. Yeah, it's just pretty, uh, incredible all around. I, I don't know if it's, like, one of Del Toro's best films. I mean, like, I don't know if it's one of Del Toro's, like, best, uh... It is one of his strong films, I think. But, like, I don't know if it like really holds a candle to Payne's Labyrinth, necessarily. But, you know, it is still, like, a big visual treat for the eyes, in my opinion. I, it has a great story, great message, great... And the filmmaking is great all around. So, I love that movie. And it is a Del Toro movie, strew and strew. No one else could have made that. I feel you could probably say the same about, you know, some of these other movies too. In fact, you can definitely say the same about all of these other movies and all these other directors nominated for these movies. But I think Del Toro's touch shines through the strongest when it comes to The Shape of Water compared to all these other films. Yeah, for sure. But it's interesting, this is Christopher Nolan's... First Oscar nomination for Best Director. The first time he's been nominated for Best Director. Which is surprising to me. You wouldn't yeah, think he, so. He, he's a, For a guy who hasn't gotten a nomination before, he's kind of a pretty well-known director. So yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. And I feel like because Christopher Nolan is such a big name... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they gave the Oscar to him because Dunkirk is a critically acclaimed movie. Yeah, but I mean... I think it is like going to be a toss-up between him and Del Toro. Yeah, I, don't, I think or so well. Or, actually, they might give it to Jordan Peele because he is a new... I guess a relatively new talent that isn't really made buzz with Get Out. But I don't know if, like, it, Get Out is necessarily the best directed film. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see what they do here. I kind of want... Jordan Peele to win Best Director, because Monkey Jones promised that he is going to delete his YouTube channel, or at least his Monkey Jones 2 YouTube channel, if Jordan Peele wins Best Director. So, I want that to happen just to see him go through with that. Yeah, that, that would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I think he also said that he would delete... E. Rich's YouTube channel if Logan won Best Adapted Screenplay, So I guess we'll see when it comes to that too. <laughs> making uh, making pretty do or die bets on these nominations here. That Monkey Jones. That's why we love him. Monkey Jones is gonna break your bones. He knows what he's talking about. He's got stats, you know. But anyway, we finally arrived, Reward. At the number one category, the category everyone talks about, the category everyone wants to know, the one that closes off the night of the Oscars. We've got Best Picture. And the nominees are Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Lady Bird, Get Out, Phantom Tread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Street Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I guess my favorite out of these is Get Out. Really? I mean, these are a really strong batch of Best Picture contenders. Aside from Darkest Hour, we don't talk about Darkest Hour and The Post. <laughs> those, those are yeah whatever. My Tanya should have been nominated over those too. For or sure. Or Blade Runner. Or Blade Runner. Yeah, that was such a huge snub for Best Picture. But, of course, it's a genre film. It's not going to get in. I mean, I guess in that regard, it's incredible that Get Out was nominated because horror films usually don't get this kind of acclaim. So, yeah, this is a big thing. And I kind of want to see Get Out win just because of that groundbreaking fact. Yeah, but I have my doubts that it's going to win simply because there's been news spreading that ...people within the Academy are refusing to even watch it. Yeah, because apparently it does not constitute their idea of what an Oscar film should be. But yeah. that's uh, something that'll be changing in the future, you old fogies. So, too Or bad. not. Well, hopefully it will, because society is always changing. So, we can only hope, right? Yeah. Anyway. But w- what's your pick, Sid? My favorite film of the Best Picture nominees... Is The Shape of Water. That was the film I enjoyed watching the most. I love Del Toro's style. I love every frame of that movie. It's just so beautifully shot. It's a really cool love story. It's got really great performances. It's a really satisfying takedown of toxic masculinity. Disguised as all American family values. And how destructive and oppressive that is. Pretty freaking great. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Shape of Water would probably be my second or third choice. But yeah, it's it's definitely well-deserved. Yeah. But yeah, damn, we, got, we got to the end of this somehow. It's kind of weird. I feel like we've ended Best Picture in kind of a whimper. But like it, it really is like, hey, this is matter of fact. These are our favorite films in these categories. So, of course, this is why we want to see them win Best Picture. And then we kind of already kind of explain what we liked about these movies. Yeah. We talked about them in <laughs> other categories. But, yep. Yeah. So, I guess we'll see who is right, who called it right, and I guess when we were completely wrong in something we totally didn't suspect. Just watch wins us get none these of categories. these categories right. I gotta imagine we gotta get some of these right. Boss Especially if Baby, Boss Baby's gonna win animated film. But no, that's not. No. no. Best <laughs> best. Animated... I will delete the Monkey Mavericks YouTube channel <laughs> if Boss
0: Baby wins the best film. <laughs> child thing.
1: will win best live action. I I could see that I negative space winning. I mean, Star Wars will win every category it's in. It, see, I those aren't like things that I would think are totally out of the realm of possibility. Like Boss Baby winning Best Animated Feature, that's impossible. The rest of those I can see happening. Just, I just watch it. it's gonna happen. So Sony paid off a bunch of uh of the voters and then very just showed the gullible ones. Cookies is for closers for two hours. Very unlikely it doesn't go to Coco. I mean, look, the Oscars are shown on ABC, V-Lord. Disney has kind of a stake in this thing. It's not really a surprise why Disney takes away Best Animated Feature most years. Yeah, you never know. DreamWorks and Fox might be plotting something. They might have gathered up enough money to push Boss maybe. I feel that that is very unlikely. I feel like it's going to be pretty hard to convince anybody to vote for Boss Baby over Coco. They'll they'll find a way, Sid. They'll find a way. Uh, I guess like, they'll find a way like Drake and Josh. They'll open up their eyes and uh, see... I don't know how the rest of that song
0: goes. It's been years. And that about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies... ...talking about the 90th Annual Academy Awards. You can find WeLordGTZ at WeLordGTZ on Twitter... ...and you can find me on Twitter at LoomRamiyasha... ...and you can find both of us on my anime list... Animation Revelation, and anywhere we're at under those names. As for the show, you can follow the show on Twitter... At manga underscore mavericks on Tumblr at manga mavericks at tumblr.com and on YouTube. Our channel name is Manga Mavericks. That's YouTube slash C slash Manga Mavericks. And we're also on iTunes under Manga Mavericks. Please make sure to subscribe to us on both itunes and youtube watch and like our content on there leave a rating and review on itunes all those things really helps the show out and helps us continue to grow and you can also follow us of course on all-comic.com which is where our podcasts go up first that about does it for this episode We'll see you next time as we give our thoughts on what we think are the true best movies of 2017. So until then, sayonara!